You are listening to the Transforming India podcast jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, Director of the Raj Center and Professor of Economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a professor of international economics and business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome Praveen. Hi Arvind, delighted to join you. We're now in our 8th episode of this podcast devoted to the discussion of Indian economic policies and this is our first episode in 2020. So let me begin by wishing our listeners a very happy 2020. And let me join you in wishing a very happy new year to our listeners as well. Well Praveen, it is budget time in India and I thought in this episode we might offer our take to the finance minister on what the first budget of the 2020s this is a new decade should do hopefully the finance minister and her staff will be listening to this episode great arvind let me begin by stating that strictly speaking the budget is about proposed expenditures and revenues of the government for the following year and just as a household must plan what their incomes from various sources might be and how they're going to spend it so on and so forth the government must also plan the revenues and expenditures and in so far as what the government does impacts all the citizens of the country and it's financed by taxes collected from the citizenry such a budget is very essential of course in india conventionally the finance minister also puts on the table proposals for policy changes and reforms in the coming year even though those changes and reforms may not have a direct bearing on the budget this makes the budget speech in india a lot more important exercise than it is in a country such as the united states indeed praveen so let us proceed in two parts first let us discuss issues related to the core budget exercise meaning revenues and expenditures and second reforms that may not be directly related to the budget but are essential for sustained rapid growth given the time constraint we may not be able to cover the reforms in detail but let us see how it goes yeah when that's a good way to proceed we should uh, certainly consider both revenues and expenditures in turn but before we get to revenues and expenditures let me make one important point about the balance between expenditures and revenues so just as a household must incur debt if it sort of spends more than what it earns uh, the government has to incur a debt if it also spends more than what it earns and just as households have to pay interest on the debt that they incur the government must pay interest on the debt that it incurs and so the interest to be paid on the debt reduces the money that households are left with for purchase of goods and services as Milton Friedman used to say there's no such thing as a free lunch if you spend more today by borrowing then you'll be forced to cut expenditures tomorrow because interest payments will eat into your income this principle obviously also applies to the government living beyond our means today deprives future generations of their legitimate public expenditures and this is the reason that economists pay a great deal of attention to the fiscal deficit which is after all nothing but the amount by which government expenditures uh, exceed uh, revenues economists as a general matter advise governments to keep this deficit within limits so that future growth and revenues is not all eaten up by interest payments and in a growing economy governments expenditures on public goods and administration should be able to maintain a healthy growth so the first thing in a certain sense that the finance minister needs to do is to kind of hold the line on the fiscal deficit praveen let me add that the modi government has worked hard to bring down fiscal deficits data show that the past 7 years have been the longest period in india during which fiscal deficits have either declined or not increased currently some economists who believe in profligacy are arguing that weak demand is undermining growth and therefore the government must spend a lot more 
even if it means giving up on fiscal consolidation. But I think that once we include fiscal deficits of the states and of budget borrowing by the public sector, combined fiscal deficit of the public sector is as much as 8 to 9 percent of the GDP. When the government borrows on such a large scale, it increases the interest rates at which private enterprises can borrow. That in turn undermines highly productive private investment. Once again, there is no free lunch there. If the government is going to borrow more from the market, it will leave less for private sector to borrow to finance its investment. I agree, Arvind. And as it is, uh, interest payments account for nearly a quarter of the central budget. So it's uh, important to be fiscally prudent, even if economic growth has slowed down a bit. Two questions come to my mind, though. Um, First is, is there a way to finance expenditures without increasing the deficit? And secondly, uh, clearly not all expenditures are equal expenditures aimed at helping those in extreme poverty or expenditures creating productive assets such as road, bridges, and railways, which are really investments, may be seen as having higher priority. So in that sense, the quality of expenditures, quite apart from their overall quantity, is also very important. So kind of with this in mind, what would be your suggestions for kind of expenditures or expenditure priorities for the finance minister? Well, financing expenditure without raising the deficit takes us in the direction of alternative ways to raise revenues. But uh, let us return to that a little later. Let me stick with the expenditures. One thing we should recognize here is that the government has very little control over a large part of its expenditures, which are spent on items such as interest on past debt, salaries of its vast workforce, and pensions to the retirees. Beyond that, it also has very little political room to cut expenditures on social programs, even when the social return to them is near zero. This being said, the government can rejig expenditures over time by expending any net additions to revenues on priority items. When I was at Niti Aayog, we had undertaken such an exercise and suggested a path to increasing productive expenditures. We identified higher expenditures on defense and infrastructure as two priority sectors. I still think that those are the two areas in which the government must steadily increase its spending. Significant adjustments within any one year may not be possible, but with sustained effort over three-year or four-year period, we can make a dent and increase uh, the share in expenditures of defense and infrastructure. Excellent point, Sarvind. And let me join you in stating that given the tensions on our borders with two countries, and given our size, our defense expenditures have actually historically been quite low. Military modernization is important, and this is clearly an area that needs strengthening big time. Uh, So I completely agree with you on that. Moving beyond expenditures to revenues, let me say that some of our eminent economists have called for increased taxation so that social expenditures may be increased as well. I feel that this is bad advice especially as applied to personal income tax. Because once we take into account SAS and surcharges, uh, tax rates at the high end of uh, income levels are actually exceed about 40% today. And as, as we all know, such a high level of taxation only creates incentives for evasion and disincentives for wealth creation. And so I would argue that this is kind of time for the finance minister to actually cut personal income tax rates at the top and middle levels while also ending uh, exemptions. So we have a kind of a cleaner tax structure. A cut in the tax rate would increase the incentive to create wealth, while the elimination of exemptions uh, would do away with a major source of corruption and kind of all the corresponding 
accompanying harassment by tax collectors. Praveen, while reduction in personal income tax rates and an end to exemption raj are definitely important budgetary reforms, they bring us back to the question we had earlier referred to, the revenue shortfall. Slowdown in growth is already leading to a slowdown in revenue generation. A cut in the personal income tax could lead to further cut in revenue growth, at least in the short run. Therefore, alternative revenue sources are necessary. Here, the government can fall back on another efficiency-enhancing measure that would also add to the government's revenue kitty. The government can now go full steam at privatization of public sector enterprises that serve no public purpose. As the Prime Minister has often said, the government has no business being in business except when such business serves a public purpose. Procedural hurdles to strategic sales of public sector enterprises have already been removed and more than two dozen enterprises have the blessing of the cabinet for privatization. So the government can now proceed right away full steam. Another revenue raising step which would also add to the overall efficiency of the economy is uh, I would think monetization of public assets such as roads, bridges, airports, electrical kind of transmission lines and so forth. The government can probably give leases to private players on on kind of long-term basis in return for large upfront payments via the instrumentalities of toll operation and toll operate transfer or the TOT model. Privatization and asset monetization can probably address the issue of revenue shortfall while adding to the overall efficiency of the economy. And Praveen, while we are on the subject of privatization, let me also bring up the issue of public sector banks. Over the last 20 to 25 years, we have seen repeated episodes of large accumulations of non-performing assets in these public sector banks. Remarkably, while the government has spent more than 2 trillion rupees on bailing out the PSBs, it has not had to spend a single rupee on recapitalization of private sector banks. Even the cases of fraud have been concentrated in PSBs. We have talked about improving governance in PSBs for the past 20 plus years, but the plain truth is that these problems cannot be solved when commercial considerations are not the driving force in running the banks and government employees with attendant threat of investigation of vigilance agencies administer them. Therefore, it is time for the government to bite this bullet as well and put privatization of PSBs on the agenda. While agreeing with you on making a beginning with the privatization of banks, let me also turn Arvind to a key issue with which I think successive governments have struggled, and that is the creation of good jobs for workers with limited or no skills. In a way, this is an issue that has a direct bearing on growth as well as that of the well-being of the poor. India has approximately 500 million workers, and if the economy begins to create good jobs, then it will immediately boost growth and also bring a better life to many of these workers. So it's in this context, let me point out two things. First, all of the empirical evidence suggests that good jobs come from success in export markets, and every developing country that has achieved success in this area has done so by rapidly expanding exports. The reason is that competition in the global market forces faster innovation and production processes, innovation to new products and management and so forth. And this in turn leads to higher productivity and wage. The second factor is the, in the creation of good jobs is the growth, is the growth of enterprises from small to medium, medium to large and large to year larger. In this respect, our focus on micro and small enterprises as engines of job creation has become counterproductive. It is true that these micro and small firms employ lots of workers, but value added per worker in these firms is very low and wages they pay are lower still. So in the absence of medium and large enterprises, we end up with an ecosystem really in which productivity and 
in micro and small enterprises remains low. And at the end of the day, it's really medium and large enterprises that determine our productivity and drive change. I couldn't agree with you more on this issue, Praveen. I think the finance minister should have a substantial section focusing on exports, especially of labor-intensive products such as apparel, footwear, and other light manufacturers in her speech. These are the products with potential to create lots of good jobs for those with limited or no skills or relatively limited investment. An example will help you understand what I mean. One of our largest exporters of apparel, Shahi Exports, tells me that a garment manufacturing unit of thousand sewing machines requires a total investment of just 32 crore rupees. Such a factory or manufacturing unit generates employment for 2200 workers with an annual export turnover of 110 crore rupees and it pays 30 crore rupees to workers in wages. Now if you do the math with 2200 workers and 30 crore rupees in wages it works out to about 11,000 rupees per month per worker. So these are good jobs, they pay well and they generate exports for the country. And on top of that the icing is that 70% of these workers are women workers and Shahi says that it can train a worker with fifth grade education within six weeks. At a time when China is vacating space in export markets for apparel and other labor intensive products, India has a huge opportunity to capture these jobs and the finance minister should really take this on war footing and indicate so in her budget speech. Arvind, let me spell out some specific reforms that I think can help labor-intensive industries such as apparel. First, we need a competitive exchange rate, which the RBI clearly has already been moving towards. Second, the government should ensure time-bound rebating of all indirect taxes on inputs to exporters. This has been a complaint of the industry, and I think this is one that should be listened to. Third, and coming specifically to the apparel industry, the world has been moving rapidly towards clothing made from synthetic fibers. Unfortunately, India has been lagging behind in this very large large and growing segments of, of the industry because India has very high duties on fiber and fabric. We even have large anti-dumping duties in some categories, which makes our synthetic fabric very expensive and prices our domestic manufacturers of these products in the world market. These duties definitely need to be removed. Fourth, we need to be careful with fixing minimum wages at too high a level because whereas capital intensive industries such as auto can clearly pay the high wages uh, because their wage bill is less than 5% of total costs and they have higher margins, apparel sector, for instance, can't do it. For them, wages are about 30% of their costs and they operate on tiny margins. So this is an important issue as well. Finally, we need to urgently resolve issues that prevent exports and imports from moving quickly through ports. Many industries are seasonal and require just-in-time deliveries, and this is simply not possible with the existing bottlenecks at ports. Yes, Praveen. And let me add that something that we have often discussed, that labor and land reforms are also very critical to the labor-intensive industry. These have been difficult reforms to implement, but perhaps we could experiment with two or three of what uh, I've been calling the autonomous employment zones. These could be, you know, zones of 200 square kilometers or larger, where greater autonomy may be given in setting the labor and land policies. With that kind of addition to your list of reforms, let me underline yet again how important it is for India to ensure the success of labor-intensive sectors. I have always found it very curious that India is a capital-scarce country, and yet it ties up its limited capital into highly capital-intensive industries such as machinery, automobiles, and petroleum refining, 
which create very few jobs for very large investments. We could create many more decent jobs if a part of this capital were deployed in products that require a lot less capital per worker. As you correctly pointed out, Praveen, this requires special effort to create an ecosystem in which labor-intensive industries can flourish. Well, that's all the time that we have uh, today, Arvind. Let me summarize our suggestions to the finance minister then. First, we need to hold the line on the fiscal deficit. Second, we need to shift spending towards infrastructure and defense. Third, as with the corporate profit tax, we need a reduction in personal income taxes at the top level while ending all exemptions. Fourth, we need a substantial privatization program in the coming year. Fifth, we need to address the issue of the governance of public sector banks. And finally, the creation of good jobs for those with limited skills requires paying special attention to exports of labor-intensive products, which in turn requires creation of an ecosystem that's friendly to the emergence of medium and large firms in these sectors. That's all we have today for our listeners. So signing off until our next episode, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.